I don't ever think that it's going to be exclusively decentralized protocols. And, and it certainly doesn't need to be, you know, like, you know, t some tiny fraction of 1% of global trade is currently happening on decentralized protocols. Um, if we get that to simply 10 or, or 20 or 30%, uh, let alone a majority, then the entire world has already changed. This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. We are joined by Santiago and Mr. Eric Voorhees, one of the oldest OGs. <laughs> I guess uh, I guess you can't say old OG. I guess just one of the OGs of crypto. Uh, built Shapeshift. Uh, Eric, when did you get in the, into crypto? 2012, 2013? 2011. 2011. May, All right, May so of 2011. And I think I think everyone that was around back then is just thrilled to see that this is working. You know, like it was so, so theoretical back then um, and no one cared about it. And to see it as like a major financial asset today, um, a little over a decade later, is is really thrilling. Um, hopefully, hopefully anyone who's been around that long in this stuff, you know, through all the trials and tribulations that come with it. Uh, has realized that like, if you keep your eye on the ball, um, the ball has moved downfield considerably. Yeah. Mm. Eric, you strike me as someone that um, is rare in this space in the sense that you're early, but also you've maintained a level of flexibility and, you know, you've, you've taken an interest in things other than Bitcoin, you know, DeFi and, and pretty eloquently, I think. And, and so it, it's rare to find someone like that. Um, I'm curious, like at what point in your journey um, do you become interested in things other than Bitcoin? Yeah, good question. Uh, I, th I mean, we should go back to like what got me into Bitcoin, which was a set of principles, right? So like I, I, I found Bitcoin because I believed in certain principles, principles of, you know, money being something that should emerge from a market principles of people should have financial privacy, uh, if they wish to have it principles of, you know, the, the global financial system should be uh, open, fair, um, free to everyone to use. And um, with those principles, you know, Bitcoin became the most fascinating thing I'd ever seen. And to, to then find Bitcoin and to, um, to close one's eyes to all the other innovations that also express those principles, I think would, would be really tragic. And, and sadly, a lot of people have done that. I think generally it's because they didn't, they didn't enter this with with principles as their fundamental basis. They entered it maybe because the price was going up and they bought some or because they they learned about Bitcoin, they got into it and then they felt sort of a like a tribalist kind of like group that they were in with. And um, it didn't come from like these, these economic or political philosophy principles. Uh, so as I've seen them expressed in other ways, for example, like um, privacy being expressed by Zcash or Monero better than Bitcoin. Um, obviously, I'm going to be interested in supporting those technologies, even if they're not, um, even if they're not Bitcoin. So, for me, it, it wasn't a hard change. I mean, I was certainly a maximalist early on. I probably dropped that around 2014, when um, when I started seeing that some of these assets were 
not just like a clone of Bitcoin with a couple parameters changed, but were actually useful innovations in and of themselves and expressing the principles that I cared about. Eric, what's your current framework of Bitcoin? Is it a store of value? Is it the inflation hedge narrative? Is it a currency that eventually completely replaces fiat? What is your current mental model and framework around Bitcoin? Yeah, well, it's been the same since the beginning, which is that it is the best form of money that's ever existed for humanity. So if you think about it as like a monetary technology, um, it is superior to all others that I currently see in the world, um, superior to fiat easily, superior to gold, uh, superior to other cryptocurrencies, largely because it is more stable and more conservative um, than, than these others, less experimental. So in that regard, I see it as the the best candidate to ultimately take the throne of you know global monetary base. Um, this is a, obviously a multi-decade thing. We're a decade into it, and it's it's growing and it's approaching that. Um, so yeah, that's where this should go. Um, Bitcoin becoming the base money of the world, and I imagine all sorts of things get built on top of that, uh, in parallel to that, all sorts of complementary technologies and other financial systems that get built around it. Um, Bitcoin being base money does not mean that it is the sum total of all financial innovation in the world. Certainly it is not. But um, yeah, I think I think it completely trounces fiat. You know, that's like and it's going to be the most exciting story of our of our lifetimes. It's going to be a story that people write about for many generations. It's going to be scary. It's going to be transformative. Um, and ultimately, I think we come out on the other side of it with a much healthier world to build on. Eric, I want to get your take on something that I, I haven't seen as much widely discussed in the Bitcoin community, which is the security budget of Bitcoin. Um, you know, transitioning from block emissions as a primary source of revenue for miners towards a fee model. Um, a lot of people just say, oh, it's too far out that it doesn't really matter. We'll have plenty of time to figure it out. But I think if you discount it today, it is something that I think about. I'm not sure if this is something that um, I would love to get your take on that. Um, and yeah. how you think about that transition. It's interesting that this question is coming up again. Um, it was definitely something debated heavily, you know, many years ago. Um, what is what is Bitcoin's long-term sustainability as new coin emissions approaches zero? So, you know, there's nothing recently that's changed um, in terms of Bitcoin that would make this conversation come back up, but it's interesting that it is. Um, I mean, my, my position is that long before the emissions actually run out, it's either an issue or it's not, uh, meaning that the, the emissions approach zero and long before, you know, the year 2140 or whenever it's planned to be zero, it's essentially zero, right? It's so like in the year 2080, for example, emissions will be essentially non-existent. Um, and what it means is that like the security budget of Bitcoin mining will come solely and exclusively from the fees paid on the network. So the question is like, are those fees enough to, to sustain mining? Um, whatever amount of fees there are, you're gonna have some lower bound of security budget. And so the big question is like, will that security budget be high enough to thwart um, attackers or not? Uh, no one knows the answer to that question. Like no matter how technical you are, no matter how much of an economic expert you are, uh, no one knows what the usage of Bitcoin will look like in 20 years. No one knows what that fee market will look like, if it'll work or if it won't. So I think the right answer is that like it's unclear if that can work 
it's plausible that it will work. Um, and I think the fee market in terms of like the dollar value of fees already today is much higher than the mining rewards and dollars were, you know, five or 10 years ago. Um, so already there is more budget from just fees than there was from the mining rewards years ago. And um, I think we just need to see that unfold. Uh, if it doesn't work, then some like if it starts uh, not paying enough for a sufficient security budget, and no one can really define what that even means, like what is the sufficient security budget, then something will need to be done. Or if it's not done, then Bitcoin will be outcompeted by other forms of, of digital assets. Um, that's the environment that it lives in. Yeah. Do you find the the Bitcoin community too ossified? Uh, I mean, I think Bitcoin is meant to slowly change. Uh, that's that's a feature, not a bug, and I think rightfully so. It shouldn't be experimenting and innovating, perhaps as as fast as other more you know newer coins in some respects. But do you find that when you have these discussions with people that have been around in the community for a long time, are they totally kind of shut? To the idea of even talking about this, because uh, there is a lot of, I think, in the community of like, just let's not change anything, let's not talk about this. Bringing it up feels like, you know, they just it's a hostile kind of environment. At least I've found. Do you find that to be true in your circles? Um, and is there a c- camp within the Bitcoin community that is, you know, talking about this, talking about, you know, upgrading the network, adding more features? I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint if you see that. I mean, in, in terms of the specific like fee, fee market and mining rewards, security budget question, um, people in my circles aren't, aren't wondering about that because it's kind of been a settled question. Not settled in that people know it will work or not, but settled in that the framework has been laid out and Bitcoin has its rules and those will even work. Those will either work over the long term or they won't. We'll just have to see. Um, I think certainly like the, the maxi crowd is going to be hesitant to talk about any blemish on Bitcoin, even though there are some, and that's that's never productive. What is productive, I think, though, is a culture within Bitcoin of severe um, severe conservatism. I think that's, that's very healthy. That's what it has. And um, people should be extremely cautious and slow about making changes to Bitcoin. So... I, th- I think that culture is now well endowed within Bitcoin and uh, not endowed in other chains, and that's fine. Like I think, I think Ethereum's um, Ethereum obviously moves and upgrades faster than Bitcoin. I think that's fine, but it also makes it more risky than Bitcoin, and that's just like part of how these things fit together nicely. So yeah, I, I also feel like this this question of the fee, the fee market and the security is a little premature. Like it isn't something that is a problem in five years or ten years. And no, none of us know how these technologies will change, right? Like if, if Bitcoin fails a hundred years from now, if it's not, if it's not used a hundred years from now, I would guess that some other thing happened, right? Some other problem occurred, uh, maybe some other digital asset became a better form of money or more widely used. Um, so in terms of my concerns over its long-term future, the, the fee market is really quite low. There's, there's so much time to figure that out and to evolve. Eric, uh, Balaji, Balaji Srinivasan just wrote this new book on the ne- on the network state that just came out. Um, and I haven't read it yet, but I heard him talking on a podcast. And he said, uh, America ends up coming down to basically two different cultures. He says, woke culture and Bitcoin maximalism. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, way to put it. And I'd just love to get your take on, on Balaji's thoughts there. 
Like he's saying that today that's the culture or he's saying that you project it out and that's what the you culture You project it out. Come. You project American culture out far enough and we basically end up with two pretty severe ends of the spectrum. One end of the spectrum is woke woke culture and one end of the spectrum is this Bitcoin maximalist uh, culture. I'd like to understand his his rationale there. <laughs> it seems like a strange thing to put it at polar opposites. Um, uh, perhaps. I... I I definitely feel like the culture in America has fractured into two. And instead of one culture, you know, generally across two political parties, it's it's changed into two distinct cultures that are that believe each other are like uh, Satan incarnate and that that is getting worse and worse and worse. And I don't see that getting resolved. Um, I don't feel like Bitcoin is the opposite of either of those. Bitcoin is like this open, neutral technology, which I would hope people in both of those camps find value and virtue in. Yeah. But Balaji is obviously like a brilliant thinker and I would, I would love to hear his, <laughs> his thoughts on why he said that. Yeah. I'll send, I'll send you the, uh, no. I'll send you the podcast after this. Um, all right. We can, I think it's, uh, I think it's the Tim Ferriss Balaji thing. We can put the link in the show notes, but yeah, Santi, go ahead. No, I was going to say, Erica, like obviously you've um, been a builder in the space and um, most recently like shape shift is probably what most people like know you for. Um, how do you see, I'd like to get your thoughts on just the current state of affairs, obviously in this cycle. Uh, I think every cycle kind of, there's a hallmark to it. I think this one is like the contagion that we've seen, CFI, a lot of these institutions just taking risks that weren't properly understood. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on on the recent events of, of what's happened, Three Arrows, uh, Terra, um, and all the kind of systemic effects uh, of the space. Um, for folks out there, like what is kind of the, how do you see kind of, this progression uh and, and and how do you see the space evolving like where do we go from here yeah i this the last few months has obviously been fascinating um i think the correct lesson to take from this which people are starting to wake up to is how beautifully DeFi performed and how chaotic and messy cfi was the big problems right now are these centralized custodial firms that made bad judgments and DeFi does not make judgments. It has it has code that executes, um, and that that difference in how finance is operated between like people with their discretion and their relationships with each other, and mathematics and blockchain and and immutable code, uh, people are not certainly the the normal society is not appreciating this yet. But even people within the crypto community do not realize how different those two paradigms are, and um, this this whole example I think has been a really good. Uh, testament to to the brilliance of moving finance out of the discretion of fallible humans and into the realm of immutable code. This was the virtue that Bitcoin first expressed when it moved the production of money and the, the paradigm of money into immutable code. DeFi is now taking that same principle and applying it to financial tooling and financial services. Um, I think if for all these like politicians that like to get on TV and, and talk about how they care about consumer protection and financial stability, um, if they were genuine in that regard, and if they understood this technology, they would see this bifurcation between how CeFi and DeFi performed here, and they would be hailing the virtues of DeFi, which executed uh, perfectly, brilliantly, without issue, even in this major market stress. And they would be going on TV and talking about hey, America and world, this has a lot of promise. This is a better way to do money for the planet. 
And yes, there are still bugs and, and growing pains, but this is a serious improvement for, for the human race. None of the politicians are obviously saying that because DeFi also pulls away control from those people. But for those of us in the crypto community, I think that's the that's the important lesson here. So yeah, it's been it's been fascinating and um, I think a brilliant example of why we're doing this in the first place. I think that's such a good point. And Santi, I saw you tweeted about this this weekend as well, right? This is, mm -hmm. but we've basically just seen a big credit crisis in crypto and we're all watching just to figure out how the debt is unwinding. Celsius obviously closed their, well, I guess they didn't close their doors, but they closed withdrawals. Debts are getting paid back first. The most interesting part of what's going on with Celsius is that smart contracts are getting paid back first to Maker, Compound, Aave, et cetera. Yeah. One of the biggest criticisms, I guess, around DeFi is, I agree with you, Eric, okay, like, you know, code is, is sort of sacrosanct, can't be corrupted, it, it's transparent, it executes, it's, like, there's a very predictability to the logic, which is comforting. Um, one of the criticisms around DeFi is this capital inefficiency. Most people say, look, it's great, I get it, but it's never really going to scale because it's just not efficient to do it. Uh, you And what I mean by that is there's no kind of reputation layer uh, credit historically has been enforced by the perceived kind of threat of violence, right? A recourse. Uh, but in, in DeFi, you kind of have this over collateralized system, which look in, in today's world is great to see. Right. Um, whereas, but I'm, I'm curious, like, do you envision a world of, you know, makers kind of experimenting with bringing real world assets, which could get messy. Um, and, and how does that kind of transition look like? Like, what is your view for DeFi in like five, 10 years? Um, can can you marry kind of these two worlds, like off-chain to on-chain? Yeah, so I don't think DeFi can express or control or manage all financial transactions. For example, like physical items in the physical world are very hard to express and control in DeFi. Um, maybe it will be able to do that in some crude ways, but I think it's okay if it doesn't. You know, like most most transactions, most economic um, trade and exchange happens in purely digital ways to already today. And I think the, the share of that only increases in the future. So DeFi doesn't need to like handle all of the world's transactions in order to create a much more sound base for the world to build on. Um, you know, even if only 60 or 70% of the world's economic exchange, which is purely digital is happening through these immutable protocols. Um, I think the entire world is far, far healthier and it doesn't replace or um, prevent human relationships and discretion from from also interacting, right? There's always going to be people that will extend each other credit based on reputations, and there's nothing um, intrinsically wrong with that. But when an entire financial system is built on the squishiness of human character, then you get you know some very dangerous systemic risks. So if those systemic risks can get removed, then you can have a much healthier system with with DeFi as the fundamental base. And you know, plenty of discretionary human interactions upon that as well. What's the logical limit of this? Like, how much? How much can you put? I know I would I would categorize you as Eric as a as an on chain maxi, right? How much? Uh, <laughs> how much? What What are the logical limits of that on chain maximalism, though? Um. Well, there's no limits to the number of chains that can exist, right? So there's not really a limit to what can be done on chain because you can make more chains and the chains can be built differently. There are chains that are more centralized and, and faster and there are chains that are more decentralized and slower, but you can also scale it horizontally. Like people should consider that part of the, part of the scalability 
of this stuff is the horizontal nature of multiple blockchains doing multiple things. Like th this is kind of heresy to say, but part of Bitcoin's scaling solution is actually that other chains exist to handle lots of lots of transactions. Like the, the fact that Ethereum is around handling a bunch of transactions is part of Bitcoin's scalability. If you view this as a perspective of, you know, uh, digital blockchain based assets versus traditional um, analog assets, then these things need to be seen as as complements to each other so that that scalability can really happen without without limit. But if you're in the perspective of like only a single chain must handle everything for the world and everything else is is a sin, then you're not going to be able to see that expanse. I guess I wasn't really asking the question from a tech perspective, more like fundamentally from how our society is set up and how how our existing uh, financial system works today, right? So, like, if you look at if you look at what happened in 2018, the big thing that happened was like CFI companies got built, the BlockFi's and the Anchorages and the, and the Fireblocks's and the big custodians, and there's a, this enormous attention on building prime brokerage and like professional infrastructure for institutional investors. Now, if if I'm uh, someone with capital, I'm looking at what's happening with CFI. I'm naturally moving capital from CFI over to DeFi. Um, but I'm, I guess it's like, where, when does that progression stop? Does that, does that like, does DeFi permeate through all of, all of financial markets eventually? Is it like, you've got this regulated capital market system and then this like deregulated capital market system. Maybe it's like, maybe the real question here is just walk me through your view of how you're viewing DeFi integrating into more like societal capital, uh, in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. I think I, I view it as as like traditional finance migrates over time um, across into centralized crypto firms and in, then into decentralized, you know, blockchain-based uh, immutable finance. And that's sort of a progression that most of humanity will move toward. Um, it does not mean that everyone is going to end up self-custodying their own assets in all ways all the time. I think that's probably inefficient and no one should be no one should be desiring that as like the, the end state, but everyone should become comfortable with some portion of their assets being self-custodied and what that means. And that obviously relies on really good UX that relies on, on a culture, like a, a global culture change where people take more responsibility for their own financial assets. Obviously in a world where um, the government has assumed control over people's money and responsibility for people's money, there is a culture globally of not really caring or understanding about finance at a fundamental level. And hopefully as that culture changes, people will use these tools that are available to them. Yeah. Um, but I don't ever think that it's going to be exclusively decentralized protocols. And, and it certainly doesn't need to be, you know, like, you know, t some tiny fraction of 1% of global trade is currently happening on decentralized protocols. Um, if we get that to simply 10 or, or 20 or 30%, uh, let alone a majority, then the entire world has already changed. I'm curious to get um, your thoughts on, on you know, because obviously a lot of times we say, look, people should learn about finance. It's daunting though. Like you look at the number of users in DeFi and it's sort of laughable. You look at the number of users in Axie and NFTs, it starts getting more interesting, but people don't like to think about money. They don't like to, you know, it's something that is kind of something people avoid. Um, how does... Like how do, how do we get people just other than UI UX, but like how do we get people to really take this idea of self custody seriously, um, or or do we kind of settle for some sort of middle ground where an aggregator 
it still kind of manages your keys, but you know, it's a more transparent system. So like you keep them accountable. I'm, I'm curious how we really onboard, you know, millions of users uh, in a way that is secure or more secure. I think the, the main catalyst for that onboarding is the friction that gets added to centralized financial firms with time. This is largely regulatory friction. Um, anyone who's dealt with a bank like hates banks, right? And crypto firms that are custodial will and must become more like banks over time. They, they're regulated in the same way, not the exact same way as a bank, but under the same framework, um, of how, how a bank has to control and surveil money. And so the friction that gets added to that world only gets worse, right? Like there's no, there's no, um, <laughs> the, the progression of re- rules and restrictions and surveillance doesn't ever abate. It never gets mm-hmm. better. It only gets worse, either slower or faster. And as that friction is added to that system and people periodically try the alternative, they will come to realize that like, this is actually a matter of ease of use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so regardless of the principles of self-custody, once you're a little bit familiar with like MetaMask and you try to use, um, you try to use a decentralized exchange, there is a little bit of a learning curve, but once you, once you know that learning curve, it is so much easier to do a trade through a DEX and MetaMask than to use money going in and out of an, of a centralized exchange in terms of the friction. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think it's, it's people's laziness for lack of a better word that mm-hmm. will pull them toward those systems, which have less friction. You know, this was like Shapeshift's whole um, point in the beginning was that like you make this way to trade digital assets without friction and people will start doing it. And even though under the hood, it was designed in such a way to protect people without holding custody of funds. The reason people used it wasn't that virtue. It was because it was easier than the friction added to some of these centralized exchanges. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, certainly for me, the aha moment was like, if you're trading stable coins in size, you would have used Curve. instead of using some sort of exchange, centralized exchange, because it was just cheaper, it was better. And finance is very efficient in that manner. Um, I think I'd like to transition a little bit into some catalysts that we're perhaps seeing that will push people more towards this direction of taking control of their assets and, and valuing self-custody. You know, you're seeing uh, bank runs in China, you're seeing uh, potentially monetary experiments collapse uh, or very fragile. You know, you look at something like Japan and, you know, I think the world is coming into uh, a pretty kind of precarious uh, situation. Um, what are your thoughts on on the current state of affairs in terms of macro? Um, there's been certainly a lot of pain in crypto. It sounds like we're we're suddenly in a bear market. But um, what are your thoughts in on on sort of the global economy and and where we are in that cycle? Yeah, um, I think you have to look at this stuff in short term and long term perspectives, right? So the the correct short term perspective is that. Digital assets are new and risky and speculative, and they're going to get sold off and and uh, abandoned during the times when there is monetary tightening, like any risk asset, right? And that's that's very true. So when we see Bitcoin falling, um, you know, with global stock markets as the Fed tightens, for example, there is there is a logic to that, but that's the short term view, right? That's the few months to a, a year or two kind of view. The long-term view is that this money is better and will hold up value relative to dollars far better over time. Uh, and as people see that, as they as they deal with inflation, that's not just like six months of inflation, but 
three, four, five years where their dollars are just like continually losing value, um, they will slowly realize that like, even though Bitcoin is volatile, it is a better store of value over, over a long-term time perspective. Um, you know, regardless of Bitcoin's fall lately, uh, if you look at its historical performance versus dollars, it's unspeakably better. And, um, as the world realizes that like fiat is just decaying in their hands and there's this super liquid asset that can't be frozen or confiscated and that you have full sovereignty and autonomy over, um, you know, that's, that's an inevitable ending for people that, that want to escape fiat, which is just falling apart. Mm -hmm. If the laws of, of economics matter at all, um, then the move from an asset which falls apart consistently to an asset which appreciates with volatility um, should clearly happen. It's just a long-term thing, you know, and and it's hard for people to think long-term. Like even, you know, myself, like if I see the Bitcoin price drop tomorrow, that bums me out, even though intellectually, I know that like that doesn't matter and it's just noise. Um, it's still a bummer and humans are just wired to look at short-term things. But over the long-term, the principles and the virtues of, of the asset will express themselves. All right, everyone, really excited to share a special update from our friends at Paraswap. Paraswap has been pushing the boundaries of what is possible with DeFi for years, and they just did it again. They just rolled out the first ever NFT peer-to-peer -peer mobile trading app on iOS. That's right. They launched an iOS app for peer-to-peer -peer NFT trading. You can buy and sell NFTs with any token. They have a secure non-custodial wallet. Uh, you've got a fiat on-ramp with zero fees at all. That's all at paraswap.io forward slash beta. Paraswap.io forward slash beta. It's a peer-to-peer -peer NFT trading app on Apple. Pretty crazy thing in the iOS ecosystem. Imagine not using a platform that could literally save you thousands on gas. That's Paraswap. Go check out the app. Go check out the native wallet to store all of your crypto assets in one place. Go get your gas refunded. Go check them out. Go download the new Paraswap NFT trading app, paraswap.io forward slash beta, paraswap.io forward slash beta. Now let's get back to the show. So in your vision of the world, Eric, are, so I agree with Santiago, things seem to be kind of falling apart across the world, right? You have Dutch farmers protesting, Argentina, uh, strong anti-government protests. You have Albania, uh, strong anti-government protests. You have the chi bank runs in China, Sri Lanka. What's going on in Sri Lanka right now is crazy. Um, so in your view of the world, are do folks start basically holding their capital in Bitcoin? And then when they go to make like purchases, they that's when they basically move out of Bitcoin into their local currency, make a purchase. And then when they get well, when they get assets, they move it back into into crypto based assets, like into, into Bitcoin. So your wealth is basically held in Bitcoin. Um, but at some point you are moving out of Bitcoin to make purchases. Is that like, is that your vision of the world starting in places maybe like a Sri Lanka or Albania or Argentina, and then on the long enough time horizon into the United States as well? Yeah. Um, but I think that process unfolds a little later, you know, like the vast majority of people today, really, if they had a choice, they, they just want to hold dollars because if they're in these other countries, dollars to them look like a virtuous, stable, hard mm. money. That's a good um, point. And relative to their to their local paradigm, like dollars are a really good alternative. They they know how they work. They they have used them before. They know they're accepted. So they're not going to switch from like you know the local Sri Lankan currency to Bitcoin tomorrow. They they would prefer dollars. 
But as currency controls prevent them from getting dollars and they learn that, oh, you can get dollars actually through something called like USDC or Tether. And how does this work? And like, here's how you store dollars on a blockchain. They, they're starting to make that transition, which I talked about earlier from, from you know, centralized analog finance into this decentralized finance. And that might just mean going from local currency to a digital dollar in terms of USDC. But now they're getting familiar with how like addresses work and how sending and receiving transactions of a crypto work. Um, and then as they see something like Bitcoin or something like Ethereum appreciating against the dollar over time, they're going to feel more comfortable moving over to that. But we're not, we're not certainly at a point where people are questioning the US dollar. Like that's really when things get crazy is when, when people realize that, oh, it's not the, the issue of, of my local currency here isn't about local currency. It's, it's about fiat itself being a road to disaster. And I must get away from fiat. And to understand why fiat is falling apart and it's just printed without end uh, and moving away from fiat into crypto, like that, that comes with a little bit of revelation later. But I don't think it's, it's happening yet. And there's the protests that are occurring now, like this is the tip of the iceberg. When people's financial systems fall apart, you're going to see a lot more of this. Well, you, you sort of alluded to this earlier, which is at some point it, it will probably happen, but the road uh, towards getting there is is very messy. It could be pretty pretty difficult. Um, I am curious, um, what is what does that timeline look like? When I first discovered Bitcoin, I said this is great, but oh shit, this, you know, the governments are are going to resist as as much as possible. And is there some scenario where it could be some sort of amicable transition, or uh, or really not? Um, and and does that, yeah. that even happen in our lifetime? Like do, and and does this all does basically does it all have to burn down for this to get rebuilt or can like can the system steadily be improved? Yeah, I mean, I I think first I have to say that I hope it can happen without everything getting burned down because everything getting burned down means like hundreds of millions of people dying and starving to death and entire populations like being destroyed, um, incredibly bleak and horrible and in like a scale of human suffering that none of us have any appreciation for. So I certainly don't wish that to happen at all. I hope that the world can change the foundation of money without that occurring, but I don't have confidence that it, that it can. Um, and the issue isn't that like this alternative has come, come around and now there's going to be suffering because people are using an alternative. The suffering comes from the fallibility of fiat in the first place. And thank God that there's now a set of lifeboats that people can use as that starts deteriorating and, and unfolding. Um, in terms of like what, to what degree governments will fight this tooth and nail or permit it to, to happen, um, it's been better than I feared it would, you know, like back in 2011, 2012, my, my great fear was that like this stuff would get banned, like the Bitcoin would just get banned because it's so powerful and the end state of it is the destruction of fiat currency. But thankfully, uh, I underestimated the, the hubris of politicians, I underestimated their inability to understand how economics and markets work. And none of them really think that Bitcoin is a threat. So in that context, um, you know, Bitcoin has grown slowly and a lot of people, including a lot of politicians own some now. And so if the, tr if the transition is slow enough and enough people that are in these various places of government own it and understand the arguments of it and value it, um, you might, you might get a sense where 
it's just permitted to keep growing because the the entrenched interests against it become smaller and smaller and the entrenched interests for it um, become become larger and larger. But, you know, I, I really don't know. And my expectation is that it's going to be incredibly bumpy and, and messy and, and difficult transition. Let's zoom in on this cycle again. Actually, we're going really broad. Let's zoom back back in a little bit. Um, SBF said the worst is behind us now. Love to just get your current thoughts on like, I know we're not, <laughs> you jumped on, you're like, I have no interest in talking about price. I'm trying to not make this a price conversation, but just thinking holistically about the space in general right now and the next maybe 12 to 18 months, uh, agree or maybe disagree with Sam when he says that the worst is behind us. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the superstitious part of my mind just like really doesn't want to go there. Cause <laughs> don't, if say I say it. It, you know? <laughs> don't say it, <laughs> but the logical part of my mind knows that that's bullshit and it doesn't really matter what I say. So, um, I feel like the worst is probably behind us at this point. Um, if I, I think it's more than a 50% likelihood that that's true. Uh, so we'll, we'll see obviously, but I, I think so. It's been yeah. a painful calamity lately. <laughs> um, and if you, you know, if you look at the various like metrics of sentiment and how dire they've all gotten and, um, the degree to which, you know, the, the flighty speculators are willing to, to hold and own this stuff right now, it's like, it's pretty much non-existent and that generally tends to be the bottom. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I feel comfortable. I certainly like would not sell crypto at these prices. That would be nuts. Um, but I've been through several of these cycles and I, I see how they play out and, uh, it gets really dark. And then when, when the season changes again and everyone's making tons of money, um, and they all wonder where it came from. You know, it came from like the people building and focused on this stuff during, during the bear markets. Yeah. I was going to maybe go there. Like, what are you mostly focused on now? Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so shapeshift converted into a DAO and, um, I'm no longer the CEO of it. Uh, it is this open source project governed by the community. So I, I participate in that. Like it's definitely not a full-time job for me anymore. Um, I'm trying to step back from it both both optically so that people don't perceive that I'm the one running it anymore, but also factually, like I don't want to be running it and I can't run it anymore because I don't I don't control it. So um, that community is self-organizing and building its own leadership structure and its own sort of decentralized governance. And I'm a participant in it, but not not the leader. Um, and other than that, uh, I'm trying to take some time like off, you know, like eight, eight years of building a crypto company probably aged me by 30 or 40 years. And yeah. there's certainly like family relationships and friend relationships and just like personal well-being that that has been displaced for a while. And I, I want to focus mm -hmm. on that for some time. Um, and then just, you know, keeping abreast of the cryptocurrency industry itself and everything that's happening economically in the world is, is kind of a part time job at this point. Two things I want to touch on there. The first one is DAOs. Um, a lot of a lot of what we've seen is sort of a decentralization theater. A lot of these DAOs are a either not not really decentralized, or if they are, it's sort of a very difficult attempt uh, of coordination um, and getting shit done. You know, synthetics try to do this. Kane had to come back. He tried to kind of like transition over to the community, then he sort of realized he had to come back, even though there was a Spartan Council. The DAO space is early, but I think there are. Uh, a lot of kind of failed experiments or will be failed experiments 
in your experience, like, is it realistic to assume um, that uh, a lot, as you see current like DAOs structured, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, are they going to work? Is it too early to tell? Uh, and, and just applying kind of the learnings that you've seen at Shapeshift uh, of how that transition from you being kind of the leader to managing and delegating kind of responsibilities across an organization. Yeah, I, it's a great question. I think in any any area of of innovation and frontier exploring, people shouldn't just expect that some things will fail. They should expect that most will fail, right? They're like nine out of 10 or, or 99 out of 100 DAOs will fail, just as 99 out of 100 cryptocurrency projects you know, will end up failing. And that's not a sign of the concept failing. That's a sign of being on the frontier of something. And so um, I think it's healthy to see experimentation when so much of it is failing because you actually know that like that's actually the cutting edge. If you see a realm of human endeavor where most things are successful, you're not actually at the frontier anymore. So um so that doesn't that doesn't dissuade me at all. Certainly a lot of DAOs will fall apart. They'll have their own struggles. People will learn how to build DAOs better through this experimentation. Um, DAOs are not a panacea. They don't solve all problems. They don't solve like the interpersonal conflicts that humans just have based on their nature. Mm -hmm. Um, but they are a really interesting new way for humans to organize. And so, um, I, I'm a huge supporter of the idea, even though I was kind of skeptical when I first heard of these things, there's a, there's, I think a, a misunderstanding of DAOs and that when people learn about something like governed by the community, they think there's like some kind of flat egalitarian structure in which everyone, every vote is mm -hmm. equal. Um, and that's not at all what a DAO is, or I should say if a DAO is structured like that, I think it will fail. Right. Um, so there is absolutely a need for hierarchy and structure and rules within DAOs. The difference is that they don't come from an established set of shareholders that can't really exit their position. They come from the constantly changing set of token holders, which can enter and exit at whim. Mm -hmm. And that dynamic makes it more, more open. It means that the people that are interested in a project can flow to it more freely. And the people that are not interested, can leave it more freely. And, um, and everything under that from the governance, um, perspective, um, can, can self form and we'll see lots of different structures that work and that don't work. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. I mean, I, I think a lot of people do think that it should be egalitarian. It should be kind of totally kind of flat. Oh, yeah. and the, we, we've <laughs> certainly had that, those arguments within the shapeshift out, yeah. you know, like, um, people don't like that. I have more tokens than other people. Yeah. And you know, that's not, that's not how this works. This isn't a, this right. isn't a democracy. I'm not a fan of democracy. I'm not a fan of every human having an equal vote when people mm -hmm. are not equal, right? Their contributions are not equal. Their, the risks they're taking are not equal. Right. Their time horizons are not equal. And so to, to pretend that every individual human or soul, uh, should be equal in a system is, uh, I think a bit of a, a myth and it sounds nice, mm -hmm. but it does not work when you're actually trying to build any kind of structure. Yeah. I'm curious to get your thoughts. Should um, a DAO be kind of economically weighted, like economic voting, or should it be trying to ha have some other definition of competence to take kind of these decisions? Um, in Maker, for instance, you see there's a lot of like passive holders, which are a lot large funds that don't vote 
don't have an opinion on Maker. Maker's a pretty complex system to understand. Uh, and you have other folks like Monet, Monet Supply, for instance, who doesn't have a lot, uh, or Hasu, for instance, but you know they're pretty competent. Uh, you could delegate their votes to them. So I'm curious how you think about that weighting towards finding the right people to to kind of govern. Yeah, um, yeah I, don't have a, I don't have an answer to that. I think that's the kind of thing that needs to get figured out. Certainly the number of tokens someone has is not a perfect representation of their relevance to the DAO, right? It's, it's simply a, a data point. The, the reason it's valuable is because it's, um, it's quantifiable mm -hmm. and it can't be Sybil attacked, right? So it, it, creates a, it creates a foundation of truth where you know that different addresses have different amounts and you can build order on top of that. Um, I, I hope to see systems and, and methods in which people that are great contributors are able to have uh, more influence over a system just than their, than their token vote. Mm -hmm. um, the, the ability of large funds that are passive to delegate to people that they know are competent, I think is a really cool idea. Mm -hmm. um, it's one I'm just kind of thinking of as we talk here. But yeah, I mean, that could become a whole new, a whole new type of role, you know, one in which you are a competent person involved in a project and people delegate information or they delegate their power of voting to you and you get some cut of that over time yeah. um I, that doesn't i think exist in the traditional world but it could very much in DAOs, and that's, that would be a really interesting thing to see develop yeah it's kind of like crazy that we back to the point of democracy that we assume that it, the politicians can be competent on so many things uh it's just like a crazy idea that we're going to look back and say like what were we thinking like a president like should i guess elect certain people, but the reality is like it, sometimes they are forced. It must be a really difficult job that you're kind of forced to be an expert on a lot of things and you get briefed in 20 minutes and then have to address the public on it. It's like, it's like a wild concept really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if anyone, if anyone had any faith in democracy, like all you have to do is look at, you know, the last U S election in which like the, the two greatest people that, that the American society could put forward was Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Like the, those are the pinnacle humans on each side of the political spectrum. That is such a damning indictment of democracy generally. Um, so certainly democracy is better than some alternatives, but um, I hope that people can kind of move toward different kinds of systems, which are more, more voluntary, more opt-in and which have structure in different ways. Uh, and I don't want to see, I don't want to see DAOs simply try to mirror this concept of, you know, uh, of equal democracy, which is, mm -hmm. which sounds beautiful and which is, um, highly problematic in a world where no one is actually equal. Everyone is different with their different attributes. Uh, just rounded the discussion of DAOs. Is there a, a particular form of DAO or use case that you see gaining the most amount of traction? In terms of what DAOs are good for? Yeah. I mean, obviously, a lot. Of, I think we're in the stage where we're trying to DAO everything um, and experiment with that. You have DeFi kind of DAOs that have huge treasuries, and you can tinker on the protocols of parameters, risk parameters, and whatnot. You have DAOs that just you know come together to bid on a particular NFT. There's kind of like the spectrum is, is kind of ever expanding. Um, I'm curious if you have a particular thesis on what type of use case is most applicable or likely to get traction? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to like prognosticate too much on it because that flies in the face of experimentation and I don't think the rules are written yet, but uh, generally if the product is digital and global, 
it might be a good candidate. And especially it's a good candidate if the product is, let's say, controversial from a regulatory perspective. Like one of the, we can be honest that one of the best or most important features of DAOs is that they, when done right, are decentralized and as such cannot be shut down or targeted or censored in the way that a, a centralized company can. So um, it's no it's no wonder that a lot of these financial applications, which if they were centralized would be heavily regulated, um, are turning into DAOs or, or start as DAOs because they avoid that friction. Um, so I think that's you know that's an understandable place for this stuff to start. If you had to look at like almost stack rank the reasons why Shapeshift turned into a DAO, Eric, is regulatory arbitrage, for lack of a better word, the highest one? It's top three. Yeah. Yeah, it's top three. Um, the hell that we went through trying to build a product that would protect people and running into the face of regulations at every opportunity um, taught me a lot of lessons. And when I saw these decentralized protocols, um, you know, Uniswap being a great example, building something that protected people and created immutable, open, transparent finance and was not subject to these laws, not because they were breaking the laws, but because they built something in such a way that the laws did not comprehend. So like, like Uniswap, that protocol and, and structure operates legally, even though it does something which, if done by a central company, would not be legal. Um, and so maybe those laws will change someday, but even if they do, how do they apply to something that is decentralized? Um, I, I think the, the game theory of that is, is really fascinating. And certainly Shapeshift uh, made the decision that like we can either build something that we feel is virtuous or we can build something that is regulated and we can choose one or the other. So we chose, we chose virtuous and um, that meant that we, we couldn't put ourselves uh, at risk of, you know, being kidnapped and thrown in cages to build a virtuous product. So decentralize it and no one's in charge of it anymore. Um, mm -hmm. so that's, that's the strategic move that we made. Yeah. I mean, Eric, obviously you've been, um, you know, in touch with regulation, um, perhaps like every that's other gentle term space. for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like we know it, right. I don't have to say it. Um, I am curious, it, it feels to me like, look, there will be a regulation coming. It is, it would be kind of, to assume that no regulation is going to come is, is, is unrealistic given Terra and given mostly failures of CFI institutions, as you say, that, that should be regulated like a bank. You know, Celsius should have been regulated like a bank, should have been stress tested, should have been. Um, and then, but, but of course the risk is, I think the politicians caught up in this narrative might not make the distinction between DeFi and CFI or decentralized applications and crypto services, crypto service providers that act more like a bank. Um, what is your, like you, you say that, you know, is all regulation bad? Or do you think that some regulation in certain pockets of the crypto economy industry uh, would be helpful to gain kind of mainstream adoption? I think market-based regulation is is very important, right? The regulation that was needed with Celsius wasn't, the federal government to put a whole bunch of new laws and turn it into a bank. The regulation was that they made a bunch of bad decisions and now they're gone from the market. Like that, that is regulation. The regulation that is in the Bitcoin like blockchain. Darwinian regulation, if you will. <laughs> it's a, it's an iterative regulation. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a regulation in which um, bad actors will tend to get weeded out over time and good actors will, atten- will tend to accrue value over time. But that process requires failure. And I think when a lot of people want government regulation, they assume that by doing that, you'll avoid failure and you'll continue to get the innovation. And all you end up getting is like an ossified, imperfect system. And you can see that with with banking, right? So like the banking industry is maybe the most regulated in the world, you know, internationally. And we had the global financial crisis a decade ago. Um, Clearly, regulations are not preventing these sort of calamities. I think there's a there's sort of a, a myth or like um, there's a desire of humans to believe that someone's in charge. I think it's the reason that many people are religious is they want to feel that there is like some kind of being in charge of the world. And it's the reason so many people uh, have faith and belief in these huge uh, governments because they want they want to know that someone's in charge and someone is making rules. And I think it comes from like a very um, ancient tribal structure in which we had, you know, the tribes of 10 or 20, 30 people and like someone was in charge and we, we wanted that system. And when you apply that kind of structure to incredibly complex things like markets and incredibly large populations with hundreds of millions of people, you just get horrible, horrible outcomes. So the, the regulation that we need in the crypto world is the regulation that comes from code executing as it's written. Right. Bitcoin is regulated by code. Ethereum is regulated by code. DeFi is regulated by code. There are lots of regulations in that code and they are enforced mm-hmm. without human subjectivity. They're enforced transparently. Right. You can know what they are and what they how they will execute. I think that is far superior regulation than, you know, politicians with all their human interests and human failings trying mm-hmm. to apply broad rules using coercion and force against a bunch of people that are trying to act peacefully. Yeah. No, look, I don't disagree with you. I mean, a, a code can't be corrupted uh, uh, as perhaps a Celsius kind of compliance officer, or risk management officer. Uh, I mean, like, I agree with you. I'm just putting on my practical hat on, which which is I'm in the conversations that I've had with a lot of financial institutions over the last like 10 years. They all have, I think, increasingly warmed up to the idea that what you just said is they're like, it's great. Look, I don't disagree with you. Uh, I think DeFi in and of itself probably we need like better insurance solutions and risk management solutions. Uh, there continue to be hacks. And yeah. look, I think that's one of the concerns. But the other one is lack of regulatory clarity. It's just like, we love this technology. It's just, just give me clarity. Whatever it, whatever it is, I just need clarity because there hasn't been clarity. As a builder, I think you can sympathize with that. Uh, I think it's better to at least understand what the position of a government is around this technology than just being in this limbo of, Hey, we're going to give you time to figure this out, which I don't know if you would agree with that. Um, or, or do you think, as you said, around the Bitcoin kind of experiment, which is the longer that regulators kind of take their time to understand this technology is probably better for the space as opposed to trying to clamp it down like certain governments around the world, like India and China have just been like outwardly banning this uh, in a pretty kind of crude way. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't advocate for regulatory clarity. I advocate for peaceful individuals to be left alone to interact with each other voluntarily. Um, you know, a, a tyrannical government can be very clear about what the rules are, right? That's that's not virtuous in and of itself. Um, there is a fundamental incompatibility that everyone needs to appreciate now that these blockchains exist, which is that systems of money and value cannot be controlled uh, in and of themselves. Like they, they are decentralized. There There is no government law that controls the Bitcoin blockchain. 
the laws can try to influence people's behavior, but they can't control the, the protocol. And so you, you have this mismatch between these, these new immutable systems, which do not and cannot respond to law, and a bunch of politicians which want to write laws to control those systems. It's, it's, um, it's an incompatibility. And society is going to make a decision either that we want a world of, of open, immutable, rules-based finance, or we want a system of finance built on humans and politicians and their rules. Um, and we've had, the, we've had the latter for quite a while. I don't think many people are super happy with it. Um, and I think anyone who's actually looked into DeFi with all of its risks um, sees such a better world able to be built because the foundation of it is immutable and transparent and objective. Eric, what do you think the, um, the end state for the large exchanges is? Right. So we started to see the end state for some of the CFI lenders, right? You, you get A, you get regulated, B, you get gobbled up by CFI or TradFi. What is the end state for someone like a Coinbase or a Gemini or an FTX? Um, I think they, they will have long and prosperous roads ahead of them. Like the, the movement from traditional finance into decentralized finance is, is multi-decade. And those exchanges are going to make a bunch of money helping people make that transition for the next many years. Um, and probably some of them will end up building decentralized projects themselves. Like already we've seen Binance flirting with that concept and, and trying to move in that direction. Uh, FTX has as well. Um, so probably they will, and, and even Coinbase, right? Like they have they have their, their self-custody wallet and um, they've been doing a lot more with DeFi. So I think they realize that like they need to be in that space too. But the centralized custodial model is going to be big, important, profitable for a long time. And it's it's important. It's like it is the bridge that helps people from traditional finance over to this new stuff. As we start to just think about wrapping this up, um, I'd love to get your take on just what what you're paying attention to right now. And honestly, what are the kind of areas of innovation in crypto that you think are the most exciting right now? Yeah, I mean, I'm always I'm always going to shill Thorchain. I, th I feel like it's <laughs> one of the, the least appreciated projects in the space. Um, it allows anyone to like convert layer one assets uh, without any kind of friction or control in a borderless way. And it is the only way to do that at scale right now in the world. Um, so I, I find that personally extremely important and I want to see that project continue to grow and, and develop. Um, I, I'm just thrilled with like how DeFi is, is performing, right? Um, I'm thrilled with the fact that we have these lending markets. I'm thrilled with the fact that we have these decentralized exchanges. Um, I really like seeing that assets are being bridged across blockchains. And I know that that has also been fraught with peril, but I think it's approaching like uh, an interconnectedness between blockchains, which didn't exist a few years ago. And, and when done well, as we learn how to do this stuff, will allow um, these blockchains to be more mutually beneficial to each other. Like, I think it's not unreasonable to realize that, that Bitcoin's layer two might actually be like wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum, for example. Again, that's heresy to say that, but empirically, wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum has become, you know, the, the way to do transactions of, of Bitcoin in a, in a faster, quicker, cheaper manner. Um, and it comes with its trade-offs. It's not a panacea, but this inter, interconnectedness, interoperability between changes, I think, um, really exciting. And, and that's, that's what I'm watching really closely. Eric, you're someone that... Um you know, has been around in this space, has seen a ton of different cycles and, and stuff in crypto. Uh, what would you, what kind of advice would you give to a, a younger version of you that is just entering the space, wants to build something, 
um, you know, kind of like what, what advice would you, would you give them? Um, well, most people get involved in the space because of number go up. Um, and that's, that's okay for that to be the reason that people get interested. But, um, if you don't find something beyond that to care about, like if you don't see the principles that the stuff is getting built on as important or valuable, like intrinsically useful and important to you, then you're not gonna, you're not gonna last and you're just going to get blasted in the next cycle. So anyone who's like getting into this stuff really needs to do some soul searching and realize like, okay, yes, I got, I got interested in this stuff because my friend made $2,000 and I wanted to do that also. But like, but wow, this like this rabbit hole is deep and powerful and it's going to change the world. And do I believe that? Do I believe those narratives about how this is changing and why that's important? And if so, um, then focus on that and build toward those virtues. And certainly we need more people building toward those virtues instead of just building things that'll make some money in the short term. Um, so that would be, that would be my recommendation to people. And the other recommendation is the, the best way to learn about these things is to use them. So like the best way to understand Bitcoin is to get some Bitcoin and send it around and, and use it. The best way to understand DeFi is to go like take out a loan on, on Aave and, and, or do a trade on, on Uniswap. Use the systems that you want to learn about. Don't just read articles about it. I think that's a very practical piece of information. I think that's it, Eric. Any, anything else that uh, you want to kind of convey to the audience, chat about uh, as we head into month eight of this bear market? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, just uh, stay safe, be careful, be prudent, and um, you know, think about what, what you're here for. And um, I, I appreciate that you guys have been doing this show and uh, been, been enjoying it very much. I, there's so much like, um, superficial content on mediums like Twitter. This, this, these longer form discussions are, are truly important. And so uh, yeah. I appreciate and applaud you guys for, for executing well. I have a question Thank for you, Eric, that we've actually never asked anyone else at the end of this episode, but maybe we should, we should start asking it, which is if you could pick one or two guests for Empire for this episode um, that you could listen to, uh, that you would just want to hear their thoughts expanded in a 60 to 90 minute conversation, who, who do you want to hear from right now? Other than Jay Powell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it'd be really awesome to have a, a civil professional debate discussion between um, someone, someone who is opposed to the state regulation being uh, imposed on crypto and, and a politician or regulator of some kind who truly believes in what they're doing mm -hmm. and, and wants to impose it. And to have a, a deep discussion to really suss out like where these people agree and where they disagree. Um, that's probably a hard thing to organize because I think a lot of the regulators wouldn't want to, well, for, first of all, many of their opinions are not based on logic. And so under deep conversational examination may fall apart. And I think deep down, they kind of know that, but I know that there are some of them that truly believe in what they're doing. And I would love to hear their perspective. Um, mm -hmm. which, which gets us a little out of the bubble zone that we're all, all in all the time. So, um, I think that would be a really interesting episode. It has to be the right people, but, um, yeah. that would be valuable. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I think we're starting to see early glimpses of politicians understanding how important crypto has become for their constituent base and actually, you know, realizing from a pragmatic manner that they want to be pro innovation, pro crypto, because that's, that's how they get reelected. And that's kind of the the hope. And I think there are a few out there that we can probably bring on, on the show. And, and if we do, then maybe we'll have you back on to be part of that discussion. 
Certainly, they all say that they are pro innovation. That's like one of those easy, <laughs> yeah, easy nice sayings that is never line. controversial. Like, yeah. like no yeah. one gets up and is like, oh, I actually am not pro innovation. I'm anti innovation. Yeah. No politician has ever said <laughs> well, that. Great. Well, Eric, it, it's like Web3, right? You now, people that missed the crypto boat early on, it web, it, renaming it, rebranding it as Web3 has allowed them to kind of save face. And, and it's the safe word that you can use in investment committee and, and what have you. So, you know, we got to give these people a shot to get on board. And if it's on, under the in a pro innovation banner or whatever you want to call it, then I think that's a win. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd like to hear how someone who believes that they're pro innovation sees the rules that they want to impose as helping innovation, right? Like that's what I want to challenge and that's yeah. what I'd like a discussion on. Certainly, we'll, we really appreciate your thoughts, Eric. Um, you're a great thinker. And uh, for anyone that wants to learn more about what you're doing, what's the best way to keep tabs on on you and the and obviously Shapeshift, but where can people learn more about kind of what you're doing? Um, twi Twitter's the easiest, at Eric Voorhees. Um, and I'm just getting my blog going again, uh, oh. moneyandstate.com. So there's not much content on there yet, but uh, more more to come. The recent piece is is basically a um, a description of how Shapeshift worked from a governance perspective as a centralized company, uh, which is pretty traditional, mm -hmm. versus how it is working and operating as a DAO. Because a lot of people were asking, like, how did that actually change? What what's different? What's the same? Um, so that's the most recent piece at MoneyInstate.com. I've got that here. We'll throw the link in the show notes. Way of the DAO. It's a really good read. Cool, Eric. This has been great. Appreciate yeah, the time, Eric. All right. Well, thank you guys. Take care. Bye.